Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'm joined today by Gary Jareffi, Emeritus Professor of Sociology and Director of the Center on Globalization, Governance, and Competitiveness at Duke University. Recognized as one of the founders of the Global Value Chains Framework, Gary has worked closely with large corporations and international NGOs to evaluate programs of inclusive, sustainable development that continue to evolve through the current era of trade wars and the U.S. electoral cycle. He has published extensively on economic development and business-government relations in various parts of the world and is best known for his sociological research and writing on the emergence of global supply chains, a relatively new field of research in which Gary has been a pioneer. This topic is particularly important today owing to the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on global trade. At the same time businesses have gone into lockdown, there's been an exploding demand on all variety of medical supplies, testing kits, and PPE across the globe, with demand far exceeding supply. Today, we want to get Gary's take on what's going on, how do we get here, what can we expect post-crisis, and what does this mean for globalization as we know it? Gary, welcome. Great to have you with us. Welcome back to Notre Dame, where you studied as an undergraduate. We're proud to have you back, albeit virtually. Thank you, Ray. Pleasure to be talking with you about this. So let's jump right in, Gary, and, and begin a chat on um, global supply chain research, really the field that you've been so instrumental in developing. And maybe you could just give us a little bit of background on, on what the field is and what brought you into it over the years. Sure. Well, I've been doing this uh, supply chain work probably for the last 25 years, and it's never been hotter than it is today with all of the issues surrounding COVID-19, trade wars, and the like where supply chains are becoming something that everybody wants to know more about and trying to understand the impact of. In terms of the field, I'd say two different groups of scholars came together in the early 2000s to create what we now know of as this global value chain approach. There was one group that was looking at global industries and especially multinational corporations and what their impact was on development. I was part of that that group. I did my dissertation on the pharmaceutical industry in Mexico and looked at multinationals involved in that sector. And people were looking at many other industries. So there was a, a global industry crowd, but there was a separate set of researchers that were looking at development very much from the local level up. They were studying economic clusters in different countries. But both of these sets of researchers were focusing on development. And the question was, how do we link the global and the local? Fortunately, the Rockefeller Foundation was a very supportive agency, and they created something called the Global Value Chains Network between 2000 and 2005 to get these two sets of researchers together to basically create a unified framework to link global, national, regional, local. And I described that in the opening chapters of the the book you mentioned on global value chains and development. So I'd say by early 2000s, the term global value chains was starting to be used in the academic field. And then what I think was really unusual is that after the global economic recession of 2008-2009, many of the international organizations connected with the UN system, World Trade Organization, International Labor Organization, World Bank, they began to utilize the framework as a way that they could try to bring together the countries that they were working with, private sector, 
and labor groups. And so we ended up having a, a boost from a practitioner and a policymaker audience that added to the academic work that was growing pretty rapidly in the uh, 2000s. This really got going as globalization was taking off and then got more consolidated as different groups got interested in it. Exactly. I think it was really a way to track globalization, but from the point of view of multinational companies and how they began to spread their supply chains across the world. So my initial interest in looking at these questions was how and why were American or U.S. multinationals moving production offshore in industries like apparel and footwear, but also computers or automobiles. Why did that happen? And where were these factories being set up? And who was controlling the global industries? So those kinds of questions were very central from the point of view of development researchers, because if you're working in any particular countries or regions of the world, they're typically looking at the global economy from the bottom up. All of these multinational corporations are in their countries. They're having an impact on these different sectors, but policymakers really weren't sure how do you try to leverage those relationships to get more value added from a a national development point of view. So it really was a framework intended to track globalization, but it went through two quite different phases. In the early years, I mean, this, this whole process of production moving offshore really began in the 70s and 80s, and then started to pick up a lot of speed in the 1990s and 2000s. But in the early stages, these global supply chains were quite fragmented and dispersed all around the world. The most extreme example would be textiles and apparel, which had lots of countries that were involved in export production. But after the economic recession of 2008, 2009, these same supply chains started to become more consolidated or began to contract. So to map out how and why these global supply chains set up in these different regions of the world, who controlled them, what their dynamics were, it really required talking directly with the multinationals. I mean, they're the ones, those companies are the ones that are organizing and orchestrating many of the supply chains. But then the policymakers are the ones that are trying to figure out how to plug into them. So I think it has been tracking globalization. But as we know from the the literature, globalization is the geographic scope has changed. A lot of global value chains are highly regional. And now there's an interest in reshoring or bringing some of these global value chains back home. So I think it's, it's been a great window into globalization Uh, its benefits and its downsides or problems for different actors involved. For development professionals, and you know, I think you started to go down this road a little bit in in your last comment. As we go deeper into this area, what is it, what is this area adding to our knowledge about globalization and and why should, for example, development professionals that are being trained at Duke or Notre Dame, why should they pay greater attention to, to this area? I mean, one would argue maybe that corporations today have become, in some sense, development actors in their own right, beyond foreign assistance. And so maybe that's one reason. But what does this whole area kind of add to our knowledge base? And why should we give it more priority than perhaps we have in the past? So I think it's it's useful to approach that question from different vantage points. So for example, one of the earliest organizations to become involved in global value chains was the International Labor Organization and and groups interested in 
worker rights and worker activists. And the key question that the ILO wanted to know about beginning in the mid-90s, all the way through the, to the present, was this issue of global production and local jobs. What's the quality of jobs that are being created in different countries as a result of these global supply chains? So they had a very specific focus on employment, conditions of work, etc. If you looked at the World Trade Organization, they're very interested in these value chains from the import-export side of the equation, and they want to know to what degree are we seeing protectionism in different industries that's actually going to be blocking how goods move across borders. If you look at the World Bank, they're much more interested in local capacity building in different countries. So from the point of view of these big international organizations, they've all got different foci that's zeroing in on different parts of the globalization and development problem. The private sector is involved in all of those discussions. And so depending on which industries we're looking at, we can be talking about labor issues, trade issues, capacity building, logistics. They all are different aspects of this globalization phenomenon. But I think the key from a practitioner point of view is that multinational companies in particular, which from the point of view of the global value chains framework, are kind of the epicenter of our research. They're the lead firms that organize these different industries. And so a huge part of the research agenda is understanding what their strategies are and how their strategies are changing. Those companies also want research that's providing a bigger picture in terms of what's happening in their industry in different parts of the world, or are the trends that are affecting textiles and apparel also happening in electronics or happening in the auto industry. And so I think I have found that the the strategy side of this is something that is particularly, the, the corporate strategy side is very relevant to both companies who are trying to see how these strategies are changing, but also the policymakers that want to understand where corporations are coming from so that they know how to design effective policies. So what I've liked about this is it's a very actor-oriented approach that includes private sector, global and national or local, policymakers at the national level or, again, at community levels, but also the international development community, which is looking at these trends much more broadly. So we have many different audiences that are all, I think, interested in what this kind of research can reveal. Here at Notre Dame and at the, at the Keogh School, one of the areas that we are focusing on is derivative of Catholic social teaching and very much focused on integral human development or and sustainable development and concerns about poor, the poor and issues of inequality. And how would this help those arguments or those concerns or groups that represent those particular interests? I think this brings us up to a, a, a very contemporary set of issues around globalization because the question is one of cost and benefits, winners and losers. For a long time, the argument has been that globalization will create a lot of benefits for countries, firms, communities, workers. But increasingly, people have begun to pay attention to what we might think about as the dark side of globalization. Globalization also creates inequalities, big inequalities internationally and within countries. Part of globalization is 
as jobs in different parts of the world, the outsourcing of jobs leaves certain workers feeling like they've been left behind by globalization. And I think what we've seen in the last four or five years in the U.S. and in other countries is this rise of economic nationalism and a kind of populism that's basically saying, how are the forces of globalization affecting particular countries and particular groups? So I think the question of who's left behind by globalization, what's the nature of work, what's the future of manufacturing, those questions have actually closed the gap between the advanced industrial countries and the developing nations because everybody is now facing some similar problems around inequality. How do you deal with automation, factory closings? And and one of the things that I've seen again and again is that there's a big attention to the connection between globalization and jobs. And the fact that as production has moved offshore or as companies have set up these international supply chains, a big question in a particular place like the United States is, well, are those supply chains leaving us behind or leaving certain, in- hollowing out the economy, leaving certain industries undeveloped? And I think that in general, when we start to see job loss, especially in the manufacturing sector, at least 70% of that is typically due to technology change. Trade is only maybe 25 to 30%, but trade gets a lot of the attention because trade's very visible. You can see if, if factories have shut up and shut down in the US and moved to Mexico or China or some other parts of the world, it seems like that's what's taken your job away. But one of the most surprising aspects of the research I've been doing in China, for example, I've been doing a lot of work in China, I do a lot of work in Mexico. Automation is a big factor all around, including in those countries that we think of as the most countries that have a lot of the labor-intensive industries like China. So I think to understand the balance between technology change and globalization, we need to really dig in and look at these industries and what's really causing the inequalities that we're talking about. And more importantly, what are the solutions going forward? Because one of these industries that's being affected by things like automation or job loss, it's something that's sweeping across the world. And and we're seeing that especially with the rise of what's the digital economy, e-commerce, and, and changes that have been very powerful in the last 10 years or so. This opens up a really interesting sort of line of argument or discussion about future work, which I'm not going to go to today. I think that's a whole other program. (laughs) Okay. That's a huge topic for discussion. But maybe just going back to the the supply chain sort of phenomenon themselves and how they've been evolving, which is you touched on in various points so far. One of the interesting things is that you get the sense that there's a paradox today, which is that there's much, much greater interdependence and much greater complexity but there's also much more vulnerability and risk, both in the supply chains and as in the way that the supply chains and the globalization phenomenon is, is affecting national economies and even the, the vulnerability of the, the corporate supply chains themselves. Some of them affected by climate change, some of them affected by, by trade issues, some of them affected by you know, periodic impositions of export controls and so on and so forth. So we are in a world where we've created this interdependence, which we celebrate on the one hand. On the other hand, when a moment like today comes along where we're faced with a pandemic, suddenly this doesn't all look so good. 
again, that's a really critical issue, especially for how corporate strategies of multinationals intersect with national policies. So one of the ways I mentioned earlier that that supply chains have have shifted from fragmented to concentration and consolidation. And if I talk to multinationals, one of the things they would tell me, because it's great to be able to sort of track companies over, over time, is that in the early days of globalization in the 1990s, they may have supply chains that would have 400 or 500 suppliers that they work with. But in the last 10, 15 years, they want to consolidate down to 25 or 30 suppliers, but have them be bigger and more technologically advanced and focusing on on key markets. And so I think that that part of what we need to see on this strategy side is that the companies are beginning to see the advantages of having deeper involvement in fewer places. So I think what the multinationals have been uh, seeing on the strategy side, Ray, is that they've really been moving towards an optimization model of the supply chains. And that's one of the reasons why they wanted to become more consolidated. They're picking the key locations where they can put up factories where they can have the most efficient operation in the supply chain. But that kind of optimization or efficiency model also talked about as just-in-time production in many cases has greater risks or greater vulnerabilities. And so one of the things that we're seeing now with the pandemic, with COVID-19, or also that we see with different kinds of disruptions that occur in the international economy is that the optimizing model is quite rigid and supply chains can break down when they're faced with disruptions. And so now the, the real debate is between fragile supply chains and resilient supply chains. How do we make these supply chains better able to cope with inevitable crises or disruptions? We saw that when uh, with the Japanese earthquake that began to disrupt the production of auto parts that were going to countries half a world away, but were slowing down those production lines because there wasn't enough redundancy built into the system. So I think this the question that we're now looking at companies are very, very focused on is the trade-off between an ultra-efficient optimized supply chain versus one that has more redundancy or diversifications built into it to cope with some of these crises. And I think that's particularly an issue now that we're facing the health crisis around the COVID-19 pandemic, that the the idea that supply chains have become too brittle or rigid and need to need to become more resilient is a key focus around how supply chain structures might be reorganized and you know, who would take the lead in doing that. Well, certainly the, the COVID crisis has made the issue of global supply chains a very, very hot topic and brought this whole issue to the fore. I guess maybe it'd be, it'd be a good moment for us to kind of shift into that whole issue and maybe get your sense on how do these supply chains fit into this crisis? What, you know, maybe what happened, what has happened really around the, particularly the medical supply chain breakdown and why did that happen? Sure. That's a really, really key topic. Yeah, I think supply chains in general are designed to deal with volatility and change. 
But typically when supply chains think about volatility, they think about business cycles that are pretty recurrent and predictable. But there's bigger disruptions that are more problematic for supply chains. I mentioned the Fukushima sort of earthquake, or we can have hurricanes or other natural disasters. They tend to be quite localized. What's really distinctive about COVID-19 is that it's a global crisis that started out as a public health crisis and quickly became a major economic crisis as well. And in some ways, COVID-19, it has some similarities with, say, climate change, which is global, and everybody is anticipating and preparing for climate change, but climate change evolves very slowly. What's unique about the COVID-19 pandemic is that it was simultaneously global and rapid. In the matter of a few months, it had circled the world and shut down entire national economies, as we know. And so I think it's maybe interesting to think about COVID-19 as initially creating a demand-side crisis, because as economies shut down, uh, went into lockdown phase in order to control the spread of the pandemic, it meant economic activity came to a stop, often very suddenly in a matter of a couple of weeks. And then as that moved across the globe from region to region, then that quickly became a supply side crisis because since people were told to stay at home, then factories closed down, retail and other kinds of businesses stopped. So we simultaneously had a demand side shock that was followed by severe supply shortages of critical products that are needed for fighting the pandemic. And I think that's where a lot of the research is focused now. You had mentioned the the medical equipment side. And and I think when we look at something like COVID-19 from the perspective of the United States, one of the key problems has been supply side shortages in a whole set of products in the medical field from very basic items that are what are called personal protective equipment like face masks or surgical gloves or medical gowns that are used in hospital settings, but to more also including more complicated medical devices like the ventilators that are used to help people breathe, which are really life-saving devices. So I think in all of those areas, the country began to, and all countries began to confront really severe shortages of these products, which ended up leading to a, a set of export controls or bans. So as of last month, about 80 countries have introduced bans on the export of a lot of these PPE items, personal protective equipment, uh, or or more complicated uh, machines like ventilators. So COVID created a huge demand crisis in terms of shutting down economies that became also a, a supply crisis or supply shortages. And now we're trying to figure out how to put these industries back together again. So at the beginning of all this, though, one would have thought there would have been sort of inventory and surplus and so forth, even as kind of a, you know, a cautionary measure on the part of governments. But were there policy failures on the part of governments? And were there maybe even internal policy issues within the companies themselves that might might have exacerbated this? In other words, I think you yeah, cases you've spoken about some of this just-in-time approach to to supply chain management internal to companies today, which is an p- internal policy issue for companies. 
but then confronted with this kind of a, a situation, that's a policy issue as well, I suppose you could say. So I think it's helpful to separate out the the government policy issues or problems from the corporate strategy problems, and we can talk a bit about both. So starting with the government side, yes, governments do have strategic stockpiles of these uh, medical devices like masks, respirators, ventilators, and, and other products that are needed. But typically, those strategic stockpiles have been set up with crises in mind. So if you have Katrina in New Orleans and you have a big set of medical needs connected to hospitals in that region, you could take some stockpiles in the U.S., let's say from different regions, and move them to that one location. What happened with COVID-19 is that because it was a, a national and a global health crisis simultaneously, those stockpiles were completely inadequate. In the U.S., the stockpile that had been set up for face masks, for example, it fell short by a factor of 50 in terms of the amount of face masks that were needed. China and other countries also had these stockpiles. So I think what happened is, from the stockpile point of view, demand spike really required quick supply-side responses to deal with that. But on the government policy side, a couple other issues are also relevant. I mean, stockpiles are something you can do in advance, but what a crisis like COVID-19 really needs is incredibly efficient and rapid, efficient planning and rapid decision-making. And I think that's that's where countries have run into, into problems. When we look at the Asian countries, the pandemic started in China. Uh, it was first identified in December. And as we know, there was a, a lag of four to six weeks before the pandemic in Wuhan was officially announced and, and people around the world began to see its potential. But but I think in, in most of the Asian countries that have been quite successful in handling this, China, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, they have very effective top-down planning systems. And, and so I think that their lockdowns became very, very strict. And I think that that helped to lessen the impact. When we come to the U.S., one of the things that struck me looking at this is that the Trump administration first heard about the first outbreak in the U.S. was in January 21st. First case, identifiable case of COVID-19 was January 21st, 2020. The very next day, some companies began to approach the administration saying that they think that supply of some of these face masks, like the N95 respirator, was going to be a problem. And they offered to begin to ramp up their production capability. But at that point, the government really wasn't prepared, didn't see the, the magnitude of the problem. And so it was really two months until mid-March before the U.S. federal government really began to take concrete steps around social distancing, setting up hospitals to deal with the pandemic. So I think we lost a little bit of time. And and one of the things that, that happens in a pandemic like this is because it's an exponential curve where the cases increase so rapidly, even very small delays in decision-making can have a big impact. So there was a, a study by some disease modelers, at, I guess it was Columbia University, that estimated that had the U.S. introduced 
social distancing one week earlier than we did. We, we introduced it, I think uh, the Trump administration began to add on around May 15th. Had we introduced it one week earlier, it would have saved 36,000 lives. And two weeks earlier, many more. So again, policymakers were under enormous pressure to act really quickly. And I think we were slow at the beginning. And then there was coordination across different agencies in the government, which is, again, something that you really have to plan for in advance. Once a crisis like this hits, it's very hard to do all the complicated decision-making you need to do real-time. You need to have a, a playbook. And, and apparently, prior administrations had developed this. It wasn't a focal point of, of the current administration until the crisis had already hit. So I think, yes, there's some really important lessons to learn about the kind of planning and organization you want to have in place that would include things like stockpiles, but it's much more relevant to scaling up production and how to distribute it once things do get produced. Well, I guess one of the things maybe, Gary, might be an interesting sort of area to kind of say, if we stay with the government for a moment, is if you were to think about coordinated response, the administration tended to kind of internationalize the issue early on and, and focus on the China question. Right. And both trying to secure more of the equipment and more of the well, ventilators as well as PPEs and masks and so forth. But it also had the option of, of invoking the Defense Production Act, which right. would have effectively promoted better collaboration at the state level so that we didn't end up with states competing with states, cities competing with cities and states, states competing with countries in sure. the marketplace. And then it seems like that also, you know, the failure to do that also precipitated a lot of price escalation and profiteering and people entering into the procurement supply chain, procurement within the supply chains that were actually perhaps even bringing in sub uh, low quality product or substandard products into the supply chain. So I'm kind of wondering where, you know, if looking back on this, would you, is the Defense Production Act an appropriate intervention in a situation like this in the supply chains? to ensure price controls and equity of access and all of the kinds of things you'd want to see in a smooth running response. Yes. I mean, so you've raised a lot of the issues that show just how complex this is. In March, the government made an estimate. That, so let's just focus on, on one product because that makes it simpler. Let's look at these face masks and particularly the N95 masks that would eliminate 95% of contaminants that would be coming in. So those were the most critical for a lot of the healthcare workers. The estimate that the government made in March was that we would need about 300 million of those face masks a month in order to deal with the pandemic. And when they put together from the leading companies what the availability of face masks was in terms of current production, it was around 80 million. So 80 million were being produced by companies currently, and 300 million are needed a month. So we can see there's an enormous gap between those, you know, you're almost 70% short of what you need. So to make up that gap, several things had to happen. I mean, one, if at all possible, we wanted to try to import from other countries some of those masks to supplement national production because it takes a while to ramp production up. Well, because of those export controls that we mentioned earlier, where a lot of countries all confronting a pandemic at the same time, felt that they needed to keep this equipment in their countries. It was hard for us 
to use the import channel in order to deal with the shortfall we were seeing in this personal protective equipment. So that put a lot of pressure on the production side. So we did, Trump administration began talking with all the major producers of these N95 masks. The two biggest in the case of the U.S. is 3M, the Minnesota-based company, which is the largest supplier. And and back in March, they were producing close to 50 million masks a month. And Honeywell, another one which is producing about 20 million. And those two companies already had begun to ramp up production, try to create new factory sites. So one response is to get the biggest players to increase production. A second response was to try to get new entrants into the field. So we began to try to convince companies like auto firms, like General Motors or Ford, to see if they could start making the mask or especially the ventilators, which was another critical component. So you try to get other companies coming in, you get smaller firms in, but all of that results, as you were saying, in a lot of uncoordinated production. And because these products also are for health use, they have pretty high regulatory standards in terms of they all have to be sterilized. So the supply side response was was not adequate. So the Defense Production Act was used to begin to get the biggest companies in the U.S. to both increase production and switch over from supply lines, like making automobile radiators to make ventilators for healthcare needs. So yes, I think we did need the Defense Production Act as a, a tool in this toolkit. But again, I think we were we were hampered by not having planned this out well in advance because one of the problems, there's two distribution problems that I think are really, or bottlenecks that are key. One was an international one. You know, a lot of our multinationals that were producing these products were exporting them to countries around the world, longstanding relationships. Well, we were telling those companies, okay, don't export supply to the domestic market. But if we're exporting things like surgical gloves or gowns or masks to Central American countries, and they can't get it, then that's going to increase the disease on their side. So we had a, a big problem of you fix a problem in one area of the world, but those supply chains were going to other places. So I think exports were being stopped or slowed down. But the bigger problem to me was was the distribution problem once we did begin to get this production moving up. And that was between the federal government, let's say, and the state's and between states and major cities. And so I think the domestic problem of how do we not just ramp up supply, that's bringing the private firms together and getting them to modify their supply chains. That that has really kicked in in the last six weeks. I think once we got started in late March to push that through the Defense Production Act and other cooperative agreements with companies, I think we're now seeing an enormous increase and the output of these products. So the supply side, I think, is actually succeeding and responding to this need. But I think the, the biggest surprise for me has been the distribution failures on the policy side, that we didn't have agreements of which states would you supply first and which cities in those states. And as we know, there's been a lot of discussions back and forth about how to deal with New York State or New Jersey on the East Coast, which were being hit first, versus states in the middle or West Coast of the countries. 
So I, th- I think that, that was a real policy failure. I, th- I think the slowness of our policy to recognize that this pandemic was going to be a big problem was, was problem number one. Uh, problem number two was not having relationships with the private sector in advance where in response to a crisis like this, we would know who to contact in order to get the supply side up, that the supply chain ramped up. That was a second problem. And a third, and maybe the, the, the most contentious one, was the, the distribution problem of once you get these materials, who do you send them to first? And, and how do you maybe set up a rolling system where you, you start with the states in greatest demand and then move those materials to other states where the this pandemic is going to hit later? So a lot of very complicated planning issues that really require, I think, an advanced blueprint of how do you want to handle that. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest lessons coming out of the pandemic is that that kind of planning for the next crisis, we see what the problems are. Now, I think we have to develop more efficient solutions to handle both those supply side and demand side issues from the government planning point of view. So, Gary, one of the issues that I mean, maybe I might add a fourth sort of concern to your list of, of, of three, which is the issue of price. Yes. So, um, and how does that fluctuate in this kind of situation? So let me just, I mean, just to kind of paint a picture here. Yes. So let's just say you're a rural hospital in, in Texas and, you know, you're in need of this equipment and you're not priority and you're, and you're out there in the middle of nowhere, but you have cases, which is actually happening in places like Montana and rural Texas. And we have a whole rural hospital system that's kind of on a, in this private market driven health system dependent on accessing materials at reasonably affordable prices. And then all of a sudden you have a shortage in supply and you have high demand and all of a sudden prices go up. Does the Defense Production Act actually have any impact on price in terms of access to equipment or is there, or is it basically the market, even when these new companies come in producing the ventilators or ventilator components and or masks, even the smaller and more easily produced products, there were stories of literally an 800% increase in price. You know, That's that right. Small, is that small hospital in Texas paying that 800% increase? Yes. And, and I think the Defense Production Act actually can't control price very easily. With the big companies, let's say like 3M, I know they all advertised that as they were ramping up production, their prices would stay the same as they were pre-crisis. So with big players, I think you can control prices to a a much larger degree through the Defense Production Act. The problem was with the smaller companies that get drawn into the market because of the shortages. So contracts were going out to smaller firms that had to either ramp up production that they had of these same products or switch over from other product lines. And that's where you had prices that were five, eight, ten times the prevailing price for the product. So so prices were going up, and there was also there's, there's been a big problem with fraud. So if some companies have well-known brands and they're keeping their prices low, and new companies come in and they claim that they're working with that same firm or that their their product is is kind of under the same brand, you had lots of fraudulent claims about product quality or, or branding. So we've had a lot of problems on the price side, and even if you rule out the fraudulent cases, because I think there's a a big focus on of getting rid of that, just the normal market mechanism 
of having companies that are much smaller come in on short supply demands means that these newer contracts that are being issued by the government inevitably are having much higher prices. And the smaller hospital systems, like the one in Texas you meant, or the rural areas, they get, I think, hit with disproportionate burdens. And and, and that's, again, where we sort of come back to the, the state versus the federal government point of view, because we, we can't really, in a case like this, have 50 different states all regulating the supply of these products competing with each other, as we've read in the newspapers has been happening, that states are competing with each other, they're competing with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and so it becomes very chaotic and very disruptive, and from a price point of view, creates lots of problems for the smaller hospitals or the more rural areas. So I think that's an issue that has been a big policy failure, I think, during the pandemic, and and I'm sure we'll improve it as this works itself out. But because, again, this is moving so fast, we don't really have the luxury. If we make mistakes on the policy front, we're paying for them big time in terms of lost lives and the dollar cost of this. And, and of course, the economic slowdown that continues as the health pandemic lasts longer and longer magnifies the problem even, even further. And that's that's the real double whammy of it being a huge health crisis, but in addition, causing this economic slowdown, which is meaning it's very hard for people to make up the income needed to deal with these higher prices. So, Gary, one of the interesting statistics I, I've read about the sort of early phase of the crisis was that at the point at which you know we began to learn that we had this pandemic, something like 90% of the less technically sophisticated supplies for masks and PPEs and so forth right. were produced outside of the United States, in Malaysia or China, right. and somewhere in Asia generally. So once we realized that we had this enormous deficit in supply, we then began this, you know, and countries started closing down. Were we trying to make up the entire sort of uh, 90% with domestic production or were we continuing to import from various places? Was China, I mean, we, we got into this fight with China over these import questions, but were we still importing from China and were we still importing from Malaysia and, and other places? Or did, that, did we have to make up the 90% in all of those sort of low, low tech items through domestic production? Great question. Uh, no, we were, we, we were still importing. But this comes back to the optimization issue we discussed earlier. A lot of the production of those lower tech PPE goods, like the gloves, the gowns, and the masks, did move offshore, and it particularly concentrated in countries like China and Malaysia and a few others for cost reasons. And one of the factors for that, so if you were looking at like these N95 masks pre-crisis, you could get a box of 20 for $17. After the crisis, it went up to 70 and more. So the cost was trying to have an optimal supply chain for low cost was, was critical because hospitals, that, and the healthcare sector, as we know in the U.S., is, is very contentious and always battling the cost problem. So moving production offshore and being able to bring the unit cost of these items down extremely low with something very much supported by hospitals as well in the U.S. and abroad. So this just-in-time production for the firms that were making these goods 
also translated into just-in-time purchasing for hospitals. So nobody wanted to have big inventories. Everybody wanted to purchase as you need them. When the pandemic hits and we have to then all of a sudden ramp up, first choice is importing. I think because the supply chains were highly concentrated in in China and, and, and a couple of other countries, that caused an initial sort of problem on the import side. But China actually began to ramp up their exports starting in March and April again. But what we ended up doing was we started looking to other countries to supply these same goods, which is why it's really important to have a diversified supply chain. So we began to get gloves from Malaysia and some of the masks from Mexico and gowns from Honduras. So I think part one of this kind of solution going forward is try to develop a much more diversified set of supply partners so that we don't get stuck in this optimization model of having a few key places being the lowest cost suppliers. But if something like this pandemic hits, it's harder to find other sources of import. So yes, import or trade in general is kind of the, a major way that we have to make up for that, that 90% that we need. I think domestic production increases works in the short term, but from the U.S. economy point of view, Most of our companies, what they're producing in the U.S. is much more the high-tech goods. And so if we were to try to – so one of the questions is, should we be reshoring these items that are considered essential from the pandemic? Well, if you think about the the face mask, like the N95 mask, it's essential for the COVID-19 crisis, but it's a relatively low-tech item in terms of the global – portfolio of what companies are making. So yes, in the U.S. case, I think we need to think about what size reserve do we want to have in the future and how those should be distributed in the U.S. But I think a more effective strategy for for the U.S. is to have a much more diversified set of trade partners from whom we can import and then have some critical domestic supply for for these key items in place rather than try to bring all of these essential items back to the U.S. economy, because that's that's not really very feasible. And, and, and it doesn't make sense in terms of the innovative nature of a lot of our companies. So, so yes, we want a, a more diversified supply chain in terms of importers and also having them regional supply chains has become a very important focus. We're very fortunate in the U.S. I mean, with Mexico and Central America and Canada as neighbors, we have some very strong sort of regional partners and, and that's happening in other parts of the world that that global trade is probably shrinking and these regional supply chains provide greater security because you're dealing with countries that are geographically closer and with whom you may have which we may have closer political ties so with these new words like onshoring or nearshoring is probably the, the future that we're looking at. In terms That's right. Of the, the way I think nearshoring, nearshoring is very important. Regional supply chains, where we're getting from countries that are closer, but also having some strategic partners that may not be close. So for example, South Korea is a very important trade partner for the U.S. for many high-tech goods, as is Singapore and, and other countries. So we do want to have a mix, I think, of of nearshoring options, 
but also some strategic partners that can be located in different parts of the world with whom we have very close economic and political relations that we can go to in these kinds of crisis moments. And you want those agreements to be reciprocal so that if we have a crisis, they're helping us. And if they have a crisis, we're helping them. And that's typically the reason why regional trade agreements were so important in these discussions is because a trade agreement would develop ex ante the kind of rules and preferences and commitments that we would have to these trade partners. And I think that's one of the biggest problems we've confronted in the last few years is the U.S. has been pulling back from a lot of our um, multilateral agreements with these other countries and trying to recreate them. In some cases, the recreation can work. It can be effective. The new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement still seems to have many of the same features as the previous NAFTA agreement, but some advantages and, and, and new features. But but I think we absolutely need to have these relationships established long term in order to be able to use them in a crisis. Just to pursue that a little bit further, I mean, one of the interesting questions is that, you know, when we got deep into this crisis, we we ended up looking very much toward Asia for solutions. And we didn't right. talk much about Latin America and that it, it, it did seem like Latin America was actually in some cases very dependent on the United States for supply of some critical equipment. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, if we're thinking about nearshoring or onshoring, you know, would we be doing not only thinking about Mexico and Central America, but would we be much more or should we be much more focused on shoring up our relations with Latin America in, the, in this area? I think for manufactured goods, actually, Mexico and, and Central America are particularly important. The biggest economy of South America is Brazil. And Brazil points as much towards Europe as they do towards the U.S. in terms of trade relations. And when you get further south in uh, South America in terms of advanced manufacturers like Chile, they have a lot of logistical issues on the manufactured side and getting goods to the U.S. But Chile and certain surrounding countries are very important in terms of agricultural value chains coming to the U.S. So fresh fruit and vegetables, a lot of that is coming from those southern cone countries. But for manufactured goods, Costa Rica, for example, is one of the top suppliers in the world of medical devices. You know, almost all of the big multinationals have operations in Costa Rica. Mexico is even more important. So there are countries just within the ambit of Mexico and Central America that I think are very important supply bases for a lot of the medical equipment that we need. Ireland is another very important supplier of medical devices. So I think we know where those countries are and we and I think the U.S. is well positioned to have those kind of close relationships with them. But but I think we've, we, we've got to figure out how to deal with them in terms of them providing us with with exports, but us not starving them of imports. And that's, that's a problem we ran into with Canada. When we began to tell 3M, for example, that it had to supply the U.S. with all of these masks and other uh, other products it was making, we began to divert supplies that were ordinarily going to go to Canada. And the Canadian government protested and said, we're also relying on the U.S. for our imports, for the same reasons we were discussing earlier. Local production, domestic production alone can't be the total answer. We need a mix of imports and domestic production 
So by us trying to requisition these supply chains for U.S. use, we run the risk of jeopardizing our relations with with other partners. And, and Canada in particular sends not just products, but a lot of healthcare workers to the, the Midwestern states for some of our big companies. So I think these, these inter-country relationships are both goods and services. And we have to, I think, ensure the we have really strong relationships that are quite multifaceted, especially with our neighbors. So if we're going to do nearshoring, which I think makes a lot of sense, or build up regional supply chains, we really want to, I think, do that across a range of industries and have a pretty strong ties. So I think I think that's nearshoring is very important for us going forward. So, Gary, maybe I think implicit in what you're saying now is we're really going to be having to rethink the sort of the geopolitics of, of supply chains going forward into the future and in some really interesting and creative ways. Companies are going to have to do that as well as governments. And I, and maybe just with limited time we have, we might want to just focus a little bit on perhaps the, the elephant in the room, which is the U.S.-China relationship. Yes. Um, and how that has been treated during this entire event and still as, as it unfolds still, it's not over now and China's had a resurgence of, of cases. The interesting thing, if we look at it from the government point of view, the government, you know, the, the administration has been trying to, you know, use the, the pandemic to kind of make a variety of points in terms of its relationship with China and in some ways embarrass the government and blame the crisis on the Chinese. And in some ways that, some ways that may be a fair um, allegation. But on the other hand, the corporate world itself, uh, many of the folks that have responded to the need to deal with the supply of, of necessary equipment in the United States are going to be dependent on access to that market in China. And so how do you see this whole thing playing itself out geopolitically in terms of U.S.-China trade relations going forward and, the, and with the larger implications it has for the World Trade Organization and for the multilateral trade agreements more generally, which you were just you're just making reference to. Yes, really a critical, I mean, the, the U.S.-China relationship going forward is one of the most critical aspects of U.S. economic policy. I, I, a few different points. I, I think, one, you, you touched on something very important, which is China is not just an important production base for low-cost goods coming into the U.S. market, but it's an extremely big and important market in and of itself, especially in the healthcare area. So a lot of the big U.S. companies in medical devices, personal protective equipment, but especially pharmaceuticals, vaccines, they all have production operations in China to serve the Chinese market and the larger Asian market. And so I think we have to be careful not to just Look at the United States in isolation. Our multinational companies, their their biggest advantage really is their innovation. And to keep that innovation engine alive, they have to be able to supply different markets around the world where demand is really high. So point number one, the companies that are in China are often looking to the growth of the China market itself as an important part of their economic health going forward. Second, I think that China and the U.S. are actually the, China has now become the number one exporter in the world, second largest economy in the world after the U.S. So in many ways, they're our most important trade partner or, or sort of they're an economic, becoming an economic superpower in and of themselves. And so I think we have to manage that relationship 
in some critical ways. China and the U.S. both are the leaders in, in what's been called the digital economy. So we, we mentioned early on that technology change is really important in things like the future of work, future of manufacturing, and an enormous amount of energy is being focused on the impact of the internet on a whole variety of industries like e-commerce. Well, China, along with the U.S., is a leader in a lot of these information technology areas. So from the point of view of sort of future technology development, we need to see China not just as a country that's producing low-tech, low-cost goods, but they're increasingly a competitor and a market for high-tech goods. I think U.S., China, Germany, Japan, Korea, they're all in that high-tech space. So I think that's that's really important. But the trade war issue with Trump, I, I think Trump was trying to do with China a bit what he wanted to do with Mexico and Canada, which was to reset the relationship. Those countries, those three countries, are probably our three largest sources of imports from the rest of the world. And in the case of China... The trade war to me was really not so much about the tariffs on the particular products that were being affected, but it was to reset the larger relationship. Part of it was around intellectual property. A lot of the the companies that are in China are concerned that China isn't respecting a lot of the technology and intellectual property that they create. So I think there's, there's bigger issues there that we're interested in with China. We're also dealing with strategic or national security topics like artificial intelligence. And there's been a lot of attention to 5G, this this new internet uh, uh, telecommunications infrastructure that will create much faster internet access and unleash a whole new generation of products. Well, U.S. and China are the two key countries vying for control of 5G networks. And Huawei, one of the big Chinese companies, is come under a lot of scrutiny. So I don't fault the current administration for trying to reset and improve uh, our relations with China and make them more beneficial for the U.S. But I think the the danger is to overreact on, on the trade side and jeopardize a lot of those longer-term investment and kind of intellectual property topics that we're trying to deal with. And China is confronting its own problems in the sense that it's a country that's rapidly aging. It's as big as its workforce is. It sees its workforce is declining quickly. And I think after the 2008-2009 recession, China began to realize that its previous development strategy of relying on exports to the rest of the world in order to grow, that wasn't going to, that wasn't sustainable because countries were no longer able to import at the same level as they did in the past. So China in the last 10, 15 years has focused much more inward and it's moving the high, it's it's climbing up the high-tech value chains as its priority. And so it really wants to emphasize products that are made in China, but the current administration, President Xi has, has also begun to exert a lot more controls and as and, and China has become more visible sort of uh, geopolitical presence with its Belt and Road Initiative in Africa and Asia, China, I think, is beginning to confront a lot of pushback 
on its global ambitions, not just from the U.S., but also from Europe and also from African countries that are concerned that China's wave of outward investment, not only to get natural resources, but to build infrastructure around the world, has a high cost from different national economies. So in some ways, China is going to confront many of the problems that previous dominant global economies, U.S., U.K., and other European economies have confronted as they as they try to exert their their presence in larger areas of the world, which is they're going to have to show that their investments are also useful and meaningful for the countries on the receiving end. So I think China's under a lot of cross pressures. And I just think we we can't be just blaming China. That's not going to solve U.S. problems. And I think China has actually responded quickly to a lot of these these issues. But the Chinese system is very different, of course, from the U.S., but one key commonality is China and the U.S. both are tied together through a lot of foreign direct investment and trade. And I think given how fast the Chinese economy is growing and given how diversified it is and its technology potential, we're going to need to see China as as a really key competitor, but not just an adversary, but a competitor in the same way that we've competed with many other leading economies around the world. So I think it's it's going to be one of the biggest challenges we confront in the U.S. going forward. And and I think right now that relationship's on rocky rocky grounds, partly because of the the COVID nineteen pandemic. Thank you, Gary, for joining us for this rich and interesting discussion. I think the COVID crisis really underlines for us the importance of global supply chains in our daily lives. It's clearly a rich topic that explains what we have witnessed over the past months when securing a face mask or PPE seemed nearly impossible. It also illustrates very starkly the fragility in the many systems that we depend upon for our personal security. I'm really grateful to you for opening our eyes to all of these complexities and perhaps We'll have another opportunity to explore other aspects of the ways in which global supply chains intersect with our everyday lives. Thank you, Gary, for joining us for this very rich and interesting discussion. Unfortunately, we're out of time now, but for those of you listening who would like a deeper dive into this subject, I'd like to recommend Gary's book entitled Global Value Chains and Development, Redefining the Contours of 21st Century Capitalism. Gary also has a new publication on COVID-19 and global supply chains in the medical supply sector appearing in the Journal of International Business Policy in the September 2020 issue. So be on the lookout for that additional resource. We'll also be posting more resources from Gary on our website. You can find the link in this episode's show notes. For more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, visit pulte.nd.edu backslash Global Pathways podcast, where you can stream and subscribe through a variety of platforms. Thanks for listening. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time. The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu.